0: All the phrases that have entered our cultural lexicon over the last few years, I think that I am the most weirded out by the phrase, fake news. And I'm not meaning to suggest in any way that journalists aren't plenty capable of manufacturing news at a, at a slant away from what anyone would call objectivity, but I'm, I'm more concerned about what happens when a radical suspicion about how we gain access to truth gets taken out into society. I mean, you do realize that one of the great philosophical questions that you can ask in life is, how do I know what I claim to know? When I was in college, I don't think that there was a more consistent message that came to me from my professors than this, and that is that truth is, is relative. Truth is what you make it. There is no ultimate order of things that somehow defines what's true and is, and is not. 15 years ago, there was a social scientist by the name of Bruno Latour who wrote an essay where he was expressing his concern that the relativism that he had come to know and love was suddenly being hijacked by the wrong people. You know, the relativism used to be the exclusive purview of the liberal mind. You know, the left wings were the ones like, oh, there is no truth. There's no way to really settle on what's absolutely true. But what's happened now, he says, is suddenly these right wing guys are taking over the farm. He says this, he says there's entire PhD programs that are still running to make sure that good American kids are learning the hard way that facts are made up. There is no such thing, he says, as natural, unmediated, unbiased access to truth, that we are always prisoners of language, that we always speak from a particular standpoint, and so on and so on. He says, however, now, Dangerous extremists are using the very same argument of social construction to destroy hard-won evidence that could save all of our lives. Now, look, Latour there is talking about climate change deniers. And frankly, I know zero about that, so I have nothing to comment on. I'm simply fascinated by his realization that once you introduce a, an idea like all truth is relative... It's not very long before that idea can come swinging right around and hit you in the face. And what it can end up doing is creating chaos. And like I quoted last week from Christian Smith up in in Notre Dame, sociology professor there uh, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, that chaos may be the explanation for what we're seeing in our time. Listen to what he says. He says, The most disturbing consequences of this long-term corruption of whether we can know the truth or not are now playing out in our national political culture and institutions. Dramatic political polarization, fake news, legislative paralysis, torrents of blatant lies told with impunity, violent radicals wreaking havoc in our city streets, scandalous ignorance of large swaths of Americans about basic facts of our most pressing national problems, some top officials boasting about their sexual harassments and assaults, Without consequence, international diplomacy conducted through schoolyard taunting and the growing frustration and increasingly desperate rage of large sections of Americans realize that these are exactly what develop when the educated citizens of a country are for too many decades not educated well. And when the institutional centers of enlightened learning and debate become havens of ideology, intimidation, and mission drift. Hey, Ole Miss professors, take note. But I, I, I would dare say, has anybody in this room not had an argument about those topics in the last six months? What I want you, though, this morning to start to grasp is, is, that, and to own this fact, that it is utterly foundational in anyone's consideration of the good life to begin to evaluate the trustworthiness of your most basic life commitments, whatever it is that you've built your life upon. Because you don't have to think about it for long when you suddenly realize that I can't say that I know anything without trusting in something. You ever thought about this? Some of us trust our parents, right? Daddy said so. Some of us trust our eyes. Seeing is believing. Some of us trust the experts. You know, follow the science, we say. Some people trust the opinion polls. Well, I'm not with the majority or I'm not with the minority. You can't say that you know something without trusting in something else in order to know it. Well, in the passage that Jesus unpacks here, he's clarifying for us that he understands exactly what the position is of the people who are listening to him and their basic source of truth. This is a Jewish audience. Every one of them would have had a relationship to what we now know as the Jewish Torah. First five books of the Bible. The Bible. And in the midst of that cultural history, they had a belief about their place in the world, which, quite frankly, was fairly astounding. (laughs) On the one hand, they believed that their God was the God, not just a God. Secondly, these Jewish people believed that God had chosen the Jewish nation to be the focal point of how he was going to fix the world. And thirdly, he believed that God had unveiled a plan to Moses and through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that eventually culminated in where Moses was at the foot of Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. That was there. Jesus is there. And so they're all listening to Jesus, and they're asking themselves the question, so Jesus, what are you doing here? I mean, are you an innovator? Are are, are you a, a cultural revolutionary? Are you starting an entirely whole new different thing for us to be about? So in verses 17 through 20, Jesus is giving this amazing answer to that question because he's going to say, actually, I'm not completely revolutionary. What I'm doing is not novel. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law. That's not the case. Rather, I'm here to fulfill it. More on that later. But my premise this morning is that in just that simple phrase, I am here to fulfill the law, Jesus unpacks in profound terms exactly what his followers would embrace as their bedrock foundation of truth. And it's the Bible of all places. The ground of Christian knowing of how we know anything. In other words, Jesus is linking our quest for the good life to your interaction and your digestation of the words of the Bible in a powerful way. And how we come to bring healing to our own soul and the world around us. So there's three things that Jesus gives to us that he says about the Bible. Number one, he says that the Bible is reliable. Secondly, the Bible is about Jesus. And then finally, he's going to say the Bible is trustworthy. Let's unpack that for a second. First of all, he says the Bible is reliable. So after Jesus explains sort of where he stands with his Jewish worldview, he starts to talk about that revelation in some very interesting ways. Look at verse 18. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, nor not a dot will pass from this law until all is accomplished. Now let's unpack that. Notice he says until all is accomplished. What Jesus is saying is is your revelation that you had, Jewish people, was waiting for something. There was a fulfillment. There was a prediction. There there, there was a requirement of something. In other words, the Old Testament scripture, there is nothing there that's going to be left unattended to. But then he throws in this image about iotas and dots. And not one of them is going to be excluded until it's fulfilled. Now, what's he talking about iotas and dots? Well, iotas and dots were basically, in Greek and Hebrew, these little seraphs on letters, hash marks, if you will, that helped you understand how to pronounce the word. They were inflection points, right? So what Jesus is saying is, you can trust every part of the Bible right down to the little inflection points on the letters themselves. Jesus has a microscopic view of the reliability of Scripture. This figure of speech where he's saying, if you go to the Bible, you will find no errors there, none whatsoever. Even the minutia is reliable. And so we get introduced to this term that we have used in our particular tradition to describe the Bible, which is the word inerrancy. What do we mean by that word? We mean that that the Bible does not affirm any errors. It does not endorse anything that's untrue. When the Bible tells history, it tells us exactly what happened. Now, mind you, it may tell us that someone lied, but it doesn't endorse that lie. Does that make sense? So, therefore, these original manuscripts that these people wrote in the writers of Scripture are entirely truthful. And there are no errors in them at all. Now, mind you, some of you realize that we actually are not in possession of those original manuscripts but through, but through an incredibly detailed process of textual transmission, where those actual texts are preserved over time, we have what even, even unchristian, non-Christian scholars would refer to as the most reliable text in all of antiquity. Nothing comes close, nothing. This is the reason why 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 say this: all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. What you have there is reliable. You can trust it. Now, that is not to say that there haven't been numerous attempts to take shots at the Bible and to undermine its errors. I think it's in the most broad, crude of terms. You can say that from somewhere around the 1850s to the 1950s, there was a great assault on the integrity of Scripture and whether or not what we really have is truly what the original writers wrote. Um, but until 1947, 1947, there were a group of, uh, of Palestinian shepherds, uh, Middle Eastern shepherds, who stumbled across a very smallish cave on the western side of the Dead Sea. And what they found on the inside of this cave were these rather large uh, clay pots, when they opened, of which were containing scrolls, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, What happened when they sort of uh, dated these things, they dated back to like the 3rd century B.C., They were hundreds of years older than Jesus. Well, the contents of which had some 800 different fragments that we still, by the way, you can go on the internet and look at them today. 200 of which are copies of passages of Old Testament scripture. There's one scroll that actually quotes the entirety of the book of Isaiah. And here's the nutty thing, kids of that text of Isaiah, there's hardly any difference between that text. 2,300 years old, and the text of the Hebrew Bible that we use today to translate your English scriptures. Almost zero difference between those two. Now look, here is the that kind of integrity exists in no other document. Nothing comes close. What you find then is over the years, as the Bible begins to take attack after attack, it comes out smelling like a rose almost every single time. Look, I mean, I hope you want to see the point. Jesus is saying every detail of the word is reliable down to its minutia. We're granting the fact that there are some places where textual transmission creates some questions. We got to have integrity when we say that. But on the whole, Jesus is saying, look, I can give you certainty that indeed you can know the truth. And you can read it. It's in the scripture. It's in the pages of the Bible. Why? Because it's reliable. That's the first point. The Bible is reliable. The second thing, though, that we need to grasp is that the Bible is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. So with that in mind, look at verse 17. Jesus did not come, he says, to abolish the law. What's he saying? He says, "Look, This foundational document, Jewish people, that you've built your lives upon is reliable. You can trust it. And I'm not here to directly oppose what it is that you've built your life upon. Now stop there for a second because that's significant. From that moment on, with that simple little affirmation, Jesus actually creates a direct connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that from that time on, Christians ought never to talk about the God of the Old Testament, you know that mean old bad one that was awful and terrible, and then the meek and mild gentle Jesus in the New Testament. We say things like, well, I don't know about all the Old Testament stuff, I'm a New Testament Christian. No, if we follow Jesus, you are a whole Bible Christian because he sees them as being fundamentally together. Now, that's not to say that Jesus was just another prophet. He says, no, I didn't come to abolish it, but I did come to fulfill it. And look, that little word is worth highlighting, underlining, doing whatever you do with your device there. But it's a super-packed phrase. And there's been a fair amount of controversy over, over the years of knowing exactly what it is that Jesus meant by that. But I actually think it's fairly clear. We can sum it up this way. Jesus is the point of the Bible. That's it. No matter where you parachute yourself into the Bible, whether it's in the book of Leviticus, who knows what that book is all about, or whether it's somewhere in the Old Testament prophets or in the book of Revelation, in the end, it is about him. The Bible, Jesus says, is not a jumbled mess. It's a story with a theme, and it's me. He says as much, by the way, in Luke twenty-four twenty-seven. Do you remember this scene? where Jesus says, after he's risen from the dead, he's walking down with the two disciples, right? And they're asking his questions about who he is and had you not known what's going on here? And all of a sudden, Jesus looks up and begins to say this, in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Man, that would have been a small group to be at, wouldn't it? (laughs) To listen to Jesus unpack the entirety of the Bible and say, Let me show you. Let me show you the traces let me show you the gospel thread that starts in Genesis 1, verse 1, and goes all the way through to the very end. Let me show you how it bears witness of me. This is a, this is, I think this is a great question to ask ourselves. How briefly can you sum up the story of the Bible? You ever thought about that? If someone asked you, what's the Bible about? How would you sum it up? I heard a pastor do this, and I thought it was so powerful. I wanted to pass it on to you one time, because he said this. He goes, look, the Bible is about a king who was here, and then he went away. While he was here, the story was that his his kingdom was present. Human beings lived with him in this this mountain garden called Eden, which, by the way, was in the shape of a perfect square. And while they were there, they had this uninterrupted joy and fullness in his presence. It was fullness of life. But those two people decided they would be their own masters. And at that moment, God's light and his glory withdrew. And for, every time, for that moment after in the Bible, the question that hangs over the Bible is, is he ever coming back? Is the king coming back? Well, you fast forward a couple hundred years later and you get to Moses, right? And Moses meets God and God says, what I want you to do is I want you to build a worship sacred tent. And in the middle of that, there's going to be a room that's in the shape of a perfect cube, by the way, that's going to be the hot spot of my presence, the holy of holies. And so all of a sudden Moses comes and builds this and down comes God's glory and light in beautiful majesty. Finally, he's returned. But then there's a problem because he still can't be in his presence. (laughs) It's still dangerous. People are still dying because they're rebellious and sinful. Well, then fast forward a few hundred years more later and suddenly a man comes along and says, hey, that tabernacle that you all built yourself on, that temple, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it again. I'll raise it again. In other words, I am the temple. I am the tabernacle. And everywhere he went, his glory came out. Demons, they shuddered at him. People were healed, people were lifted up. And on the night when he died, this great curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple ripped from top to bottom. Not just so that you and I now have access into him, but so that symbolically he is getting out. He's on the move, he's restoring, he's healing the things that are broken. Now look, don't miss this, because that healing now lives in the church, among the people of God. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What does he mean? He means that that little garden of Eden, back so many years ago, and that was then in the tabernacle, and then moved to the great Jewish temple, is now in you. In your hearts and in your lives, bringing about transformation and change. And the Sermon on the Mount is just a map to that transformation. That's all it is. By the way, finally, the last chapter of that book is not yet written. (laughs) Because what we find is that power, once it breaks out of heaven and into the world, it's going to come down and eventually cover the whole earth. Until finally, in Revelation 21, we find that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. Hey, guess what shape it is? It's a perfect cube. (laughs) Because why? It's the presence of God with the same dimensions as the garden and the temple. The whole world is going to turn into one gigantic garden of Eden, one gigantic temple with the light of Jesus at its center. Look, here's the point. What this passage is in the Sermon on the Mount is a gateway into some of the heavy teaching portion. I'm not going to lie to you. In the weeks ahead... We're going to get down into some serious, soul-searching, transformational stuff that Jesus wants to bring us through. But there's a way to read this sermon wrongly. Our tendency is to read as if it's a great big wagging finger. Just wagging at us. So how have you done now? If we don't even read the Sermon on the Mount as if ultimately it is fulfilled in Jesus, it's going to turn around and curse us. And it's not going to do what it needs to do in us and change us. It's going to do something miraculous in us. Okay, so the Bible, first of all, is reliable. Second of all, it's about Jesus. But thirdly and finally, the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is trustworthy. Look, you put those first two points together, and you start to get some explanation for why the Bible talks about itself, the way in which it does. We read in Timothy that Timothy said that it is profitable, right? In other words, there is gain, Paul says, in building your life on the Bible. Not the least of which is because the Bible ends up being the very catalyst for change in you. The Bible will change you. We've talked before the service about Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In other words, you dive into the Bible and it's headed for the nooks and crannies of your life. That's the point. And we don't hide from it. And what that means is, is before you start to dive in and study the Bible, if you have a personal commitment to your own status quo, kind of keeping things the way they generally are, don't read it. But for those who do, who long for it, the Bible comes in and starts to change things. Typically, when we start to change our lives, we have different questions, don't we? We're like, you know what? Lose some weight. I should exercise more. You know, I, I'm going to go to bed earlier, right? I'm going to do something like something superficial. But the funny thing is, is we have a religious version of that as well. You know what? I'm going to go back to church. I, I'm going to join a small group. I, I'll probably even give a little money to the church. But here's the deal. None of those things are, are a problem in and of themselves. But what Jesus is saying is, if any of those things are abstracted, from the pursuit of his glory in the pages of the Bible, those things are going to do the exact opposite of what you want them to do. Instead of softening you, they harden you. Instead of breaking you, they puff you up and make you condescend to others. So if we find ourselves missing Jesus in the text, we've missed something essential. Look, what the Bible is saying is, is when you build your life upon it, you actually become someone who can never fail in life. I'm getting this from 1 Peter one twenty-three. There's a passage there where Peter's unpacking for his readers what he, what he means by an assurance of salvation. You want to talk about things that we know? How do I know that I am a Christian? Well, I just know. Oh, okay. Well, how do you know? Upon what basis do you rest that conviction that God and I are on the same page? Listen to what Peter says. He says, you though have been born again not of Perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. <laughs> what Peter's saying is, if you are born again today, it is not because you followed a very cleverly defined path. It's not because you were super, super, super sincere at that evangelistic rally that you went to as a child. It's not even because you've been doing your best since the very beginning to live like you'd want me to live. It's none of those things. <laughs> And actually, if you try to build your life on those kind of assurances, my guess is that you don't have a very assured life. You, You probably don't love God. You're probably more afraid of him. Joy probably doesn't mark your life. It's probably more intimidation of him. We oftentimes walk around as if we're just hoping to hang on a little while longer so that one day I'll get the favor from him that I crave. What are those things? You know what those are? Those are perishable seeds. It goes away. That you can doubt them always. Hey, but here's the good news this morning. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Which means, among other things, that you being born again did not happen because of anything in you at all. Instead, you have an imperishable seed. Something that cannot be touched. It can't even be touched by your failure to live up to it. And that's Amazing. What could that be? we look at verse 23, how it ends. Through the living and abiding word of God. That's how. Only the Bible can give me the assurance of who I am as a Christian based on anything other than performance. But it can give me something on permanence and security. Let me see if I can put it this way. To the degree that you take the Bible into your mind and in your heart, you become an imperishable person. That's the difference. Whatever you do will never fall away. Jesus has this little throwaway phrase in Matthew ten forty two when he says, "Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward." What's Jesus saying? He's saying like even the tiny little things, the, the little the little iota's and dots of your life that the world will probably never notice. Those things will ring through the halls of eternity forever. There is no dignity like the dignity and beauty of a life built upon something that's imperishable. That's the difference. There's a pastor up in Nashville uh, who I, I read uh, something that he had written a while back named Russ Ramsey. And he found himself in a hospital uh, with a bacterial infection, a very serious um, illness. And uh, it turns out he was there on his birthday of all days. How depressing, right? Well, one of the nurses, an African-American lady, came into the room and looked at his chart and was sort of reading out loud and said, Russell Brown Ramsey, May 17th. Wait a minute. Is today your birthday? He admitted to her, yes, it actually was. Listen to him describe what happened next. She straightened herself up and turned to face me and put her right hand on my left, a portrait of dignity and poise. And then... With just the two of us in the room, she began to sing over me. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Mr. Ramsey. Happy birthday to you. She smiled at me, turned, and then left the room. And I broke down crying. This woman didn't know me. But she knew this stretch of trail, hospital, facing a a very difficult situation. And it was my birthday She didn't know whether I was kind or gentle, mean or abrasive, honest or a liar. She just knew that I was there in the hospital on my birthday and probably feeling a little lost. And on that basis, I mattered to her. Later on, Russ would go and find out that she was a Christian. Where did she ever get that idea to show that kind of kindness to someone in that kind of place? And you know what else is crazy? That woman somewhere, presumably walking around Nashville, has no idea that a church in Oxford, Mississippi is heralding what she did. That's an image. The tiniest little things that the world never sees suddenly ring throughout the halls of eternity. Christians do not barter in the realm of taking over the world. You want to do big things for God? Find the tiny little faithfulnesses. Because it's in those places where culture is preserved. And it's in those places that as you begin to embrace and embody and walk in those things, you become an imperishable person. Someone with a dignity that no one could ever come close to matching in another worldview. Only in the Bible do we get that kind of thing. That nurse represents to us an imperishable life made possible because she was touched by the word of God. So what does it mean? I don't know. Maybe we should read it. (laughs) Maybe we should join a small group and study it. Not because those things are religious in themselves, but because somewhere in there, there's truth. There's something to build a life upon that's not fake, but real and substantive. Don't you want that? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we hope that you will guide us into it. Because the truth is, as we prayed earlier this morning, our hearts are hard. And we are amazing at our ability to finagle ways to get around your clearest revelation. And so we ask that you would come and bring us home, bring us into clarity. Father, bring us into who we really are. And that doesn't mean just humility, but also the exaltation of being people that you have seen fit to honor in this way. Small cups of water given to people along the way, never forgotten. Father, many of us in this room wonder if anyone sees us but you see us, and we are seen by you in your word. So would you plunge us very deep into it, both now and through the rest of our lives. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.